What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about Indivisible. You may remember, that's the grassroots network of local activists that sprang up after Trump's victory. They've got at least one active local group in every congressional district. And now that the Democratic primary candidates are fighting for the nomination, we wondered what Indivisible groups were doing in the primaries. For a report we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and a political analyst for CNN. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Glad to be back. Well, we've uh, interviewed Indivisible's co-founder Ezra Levin here on this show a couple of times, but remind us how this group was created, starting with the Indivisible Guide. Well, they were created kind of on the fly uh, by Ezra and his wife, Leah Greenberg, and some friends of theirs in this very sad days after Hillary Clinton's defeat. And because they had both worked for progressives in Congress and had seen the rise of the Tea Party, they thought that they would write a guide, the Indivisible Guide, to how local groups could basically block the Republican agenda with local activity, particularly in congressional districts. Their focus was both on strengthening the spine of Democrats, because there was a lot of talk, you may remember in those early days, about, well, maybe we have to collaborate with Trump on infrastructure or something, we just can't say no, but also on pressuring Republicans. And so it began as simply an online guide, and it it took off. It really captured something in in the zeitgeist about people wanting to have some practical channel for their despair and their anger. There was a turning point in the takeoff of Indivisible, a single event that changed everything. Tell us about that. Well, it was, uh, it was two-faceted. Uh, uh, for one thing, they, they'd asked uh, people who were interested and who were organizing around the guide to sign up on an online map. And they also found an outlet, an early outlet uh, or or test case for what they were trying to do in the uh, attempt by uh, Congressman Goodlatte from Roanoke, Virginia, our listeners may recall, to absolutely gut the House Ethics Committee and the oversight process. Because of a lot of outcry, not just indivisibles, Goodlatte uh, and the Republicans wound up withdrawing that that piece of legislation. But in the meantime, the indivisible folks based in D.C. made contact with with some local activists in Roanoke, and they collaborated on a little event in Goodlatte's district office that was kind of a a test case of of what they wanted locals to do. The group wasn't allowed in, so it was in some ways a bust, but they took their own video of what happened, and they posted it online, and Rachel Maddow saw it, uh, or her producer saw it, and she wound up using it and using it as kind of a news hook to interview Ezra uh, Levin and talk about Indivisible. And uh, 
talking to Ezra and Leah, they said the night that Rachel talked about them, they had to turn off their phones because they were get they'd been getting they signed up for notifications when new groups put their put their names on the map, uh, and they couldn't sleep because they were getting so many buzzes and pings uh, all night long, and they literally had thousands more by the next morning. And how big do we think Indivisible is right now? It's very hard to say because at at one point, more than 5,000, I have to say in quotes, groups were listed on the map. Somebody decided to sign up as, you know, indivisible small town USA, but they've never really had the capacity. They're, they're trying to do this now to, to figure out if all of those groups are still active or ever were active. You know, there are stories, the scholar, the Harvard scholar, Theta Scotchpole has done some research on this and, and Indivisible has too. And they admit, you know, they'll find out that, that somebody who signed up was just one guy with a mailing list who never carried out any activities, whereas others are incredibly uh, well-organized groups with hundreds of, of active local participants. So the, the best estimate is there are probably more than a thousand groups out there, but they have confirmed that they've got somebody in all 435 congressional districts. So that, that's, a kind, that's a kind of power for sure. What do we know about who are the local leaders in the 435 districts, the people who are not at headquarters in Washington, D.C.? Well, Theta Scotchpole, she found that they are overwhelmingly white college-educated women, 70 to 90 percent, she told me, with an average age of about 55. And that does line up with my own observation of indivisible groups. My first uh, exposure to a local indivisible group was a couple years ago when I covered the John Ossoff race in suburban Georgia, and there were several indivisible uh, groups active in that effort. And, you know, going to their meetings and, and talking to their leaders, they were, they were by and large middle-aged, I would say, white, white women. And that's been true as I've traveled around the country. So even though the founders are, are you know, 30-something, I think, somehow this, this concept appealed to a lot of women, suburban and urban and rural, for that matter, who were a little bit older and uh, probably some of them wishing that they had done more to elect the first female president, Hillary Clinton, in 2016. In 2018, the indivisible groups were very active in the congressional races and supporting Democratic challengers especially. The big question is, what are indivisible groups doing now in the primary season? That's the real subject of your reporting. What did you find out? Well, I found out that that primaries, whether they are at the state, local, congressional, or presidential level, uh, are very controversial within Indivisible. They have actually divided uh, some local groups when, when they've tried to weigh in. And so, especially as the national organization has ramped up and tried to play more of a role in national politics, there have been a, there have been another uh, excuse me a number of flashpoints of tension. But the question of whether or not to endorse in the Democratic primary has has emerged as probably the biggest one so far. By all measures that I'm aware of, including Indivisible's own attempts at surveys, most of the local groups. Uh, are, would, would, would rather they not endorse 
uh, in the presidential primary. There are still 20, at least 20 candidates, maybe 10 are viable. And in their early surveys, uh, Indivisible has found real variation in who their members uh, are, are supporting. But more than 90% of them currently support more than one person. So the Indivisible grassroots groups don't want to endorse anyone in the Democratic primaries right now, but doesn't that mean they're letting other activist groups have the impact and the power? Doesn't this mark the sort of decline of Indivisible as a force within the Democratic Party? Well, I would say no. Uh, certainly the, the national leadership frames it much the way you do, that other groups are, are making this choice, other groups are going to line up with with candidates, and this is a chance to have real impact on the issues we care about, which are immigration reform and democracy reform and, and all good things like that. Now, I should say some local people do support this idea, but the vast majority that I've talked to and even in surveys I've seen, they don't. What they say is that indivisible strength is pulling together people on the local level to work on issues that are local priorities. Sometimes uh, that involves elections, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, They were very, very important in the fight to preserve and protect the Affordable Care Act, for instance, and that at the local level, we have seen local groups split up, uh, at least temporarily, over the issue of endorsing even locally. So, So the point that the opponents make is that this could fracture cohesion in these local groups. And one of the, one of the great things that I saw, John, and you and I talked about this uh, over, over 2017 and 2018, was that not just Indivisible, but a lot, of, a lot of progressive groups, they worked really hard to heal the rifts that opened up during the bruising 2016 primary. And Indivisible really took the lead on doing that, both at the national and local level. And so folks are saying, why would we recreate that strife or, or, or rather take the risk of recreating that strife? There have been some attempts to survey Indivisible members about who they want to win the nomination. What can you tell us about that? Well, Indivisible national leaders cautioned me not to take those attempts that seriously. However, they put them out there, so I'm a reporter. I'm at least going to report on them. And, you know, in some ways they've been all over the maps. I would say a consist- consistently Elizabeth Warren has done well. Kamala Harris did very well in the first two uh, and not so well in the third. Perhaps reflecting the fact that the membership is overwhelmingly female, those two women consistently do well. But Joe Biden has done better than Bernie Sanders, which surprises some people. Uh, And so, you know, one scenario where some people, even some local people have said, an endorsement makes sense is let's say uh, the, the, the race comes down to Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. Well, it might seem self-evident that Elizabeth Warren would be the, quote, indivisible candidate, right? And that, that, that may be what happens. You know, some of the local, the staunch local opponents of an endorsement would say, but why would you even bother doing that? It would be obvious that she is probably ideologically the closest. But also, if I'm organizing in Dubuque, Iowa, and we've got a lot of folks who are still diehard Joe Biden fans, 
why are we going to, you know, fracture that group? Why are we going to turn away uh, the Biden fans or the Bernie fans or the Buttigieg fans uh, or the Harris fans in in the event that it, it would, you know, would be Warren over Harris? That could be racially divisive as well. So there, if you look at, at it from the point of view of the folks on the ground, there's a lot of risk to endorsing. And if you listen to the... Uh, staunchest critics of the idea that the the risks outweigh the rewards. So if Indivisible is not going to work for a candidate in the primaries, what are they going to do between now and the Democratic National Convention, which is, you know, many months away? Well, I mean, locally, there are lots of races to work on. You know, Indivisible Roanoke, which I mentioned earlier, they, they helped flip some uh, Virginia House of Delegates seats in 2017. Uh, they helped elect some, somebody who lost her race uh, in 2017, went on to join the Roanoke City Council in 2018, and they flipped the Roanoke City Council Democratic. There are lots of, of local, state, regional, congressional races to be involved in. Uh, and one of the people that I interviewed who is an, uh, an opponent of endorsements was was very strong about the fact that way too much progressive money and time goes into the presidential races every four years while we've seen, and I've written about this, the Democrats get their clocks cleaned at the statehouse level. So there's plenty of work to do apart from getting involved in presidential primary. There are also Indivisible uh, wants to play a role in, in budget battles. They want to be part of a, they are part of a coalition calling on Congress to reduce funding for ICE uh, and, and move on other forms of, Im- of immigration reform. There are lots of issues to be active on if they decide not to get involved in the presidential race. Joan Walsh's report on Indivisible is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.